For hundreds of years, the planet Mars has been the subject of heated controversy among scientists. Falcon Heavy is configured for flight. Tango Delta nominal. Five, four, three, two. Main engine start, zero, and liftoff of the Delta rocket with opportunity. When you look at a planet as one little tiny dot in space, it, it really isn't representative of what's going on on the planet. It's a stretch goal. It is so audacious. We are one world, and that we are more connected than we um, give ourselves credit for a lot of the time. Hello, welcome to We Martians. I'm Jake Robbins. Every 10 years, a great endeavor to discern the most important questions in planetary science is undertaken. The Decadal Survey brings together scientists across the industry to debate, distill, and determine the most important recommendations for NASA as it plans missions for the next decade. It's an incredibly important report that will be referenced over and over for a long time, and for two weeks now, it has been out in the public for us to read. I've been poring over this 780-page document for many days now, and there's a lot to unpack here. What missions should NASA fly? What should be prioritized? How should it organize its programs? How does planetary science fit in with human spaceflight? How should we get the most out of the workforce? These are huge questions that the report tackles. I wanted to make sure that we covered this report extensively and with great insight. And so I turned to my friend Casey Dreyer to go through it with me today. Casey is the chief advocate at the Planetary Society and an expert on space policy matters. He joined me for what is a gauntlet of a conversation that covers so much. I've broken it into two episodes so that you have a spot to take a break, grab a snack and some water, and come back for round two. In this first episode, we'll cover what the report is, how it comes together, and why it's so important, and we'll review the recommendations for flagship and New Frontiers missions. We'll also talk about small missions and the Mars program. In episode two, we're going to tackle the lunar program at NASA, how it's organized, and how the Artemis program can and should play a role in planetary science at the moon. Then we'll dig into the budgeting and cost recommendations, as well as ways to tackle workforce equity, optimization, and more in the planetary community. All right, so we're here again with Casey Dreyer. Returning to the show, I, I'm almost losing count, four or five times now, I think, that you have been on here. Um, so welcome back, Casey. It's great to see you again. Thanks, Jake. It's my pleasure to be here. Uh, last time I had you on was about a year ago. Uh, we were talking about uh, SpaceX and a big uh, lander that was just contracted to go to the moon with Artemis. Um, so that's how long it's been, you know, in, in pandemic time. That's a lot, I guess. Uh, or a <laughs> but, little. Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, it's or a little, depending on together. your frame of reference. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and we're going to talk this year, or whatever this uh, this this occurrence uh, of of you on the show. We're going to talk this time about the uh, Decadal Survey, which is a, a big deal in the space policy world. So this is this is the in the Venn diagram of Jake and Casey. This is definitely the the place where uh, the Decadal Survey lives, right in the middle there. I think <laughs> this is like Christmas for uh, space people. Before we open that up, though, I just want to just check in with you. So what have you been up to in the last year? Uh, tell us a bit about uh, your work with the Planetary Society and what sort of projects you've been uh, working on. Yeah, well, we've been marching along trying to do everything we can remotely, obviously, for the Planetary Society. Uh, we did our Day of Action, which was our annual Congressional Visits Day. We had 115 members of the Planetary Society hold 160 meetings with members of Congress and their staff promoting all the stuff that the Planetary Society likes to talk about, uh, planetary exploration, planetary defense, search for life. That was a really nice number. Uh, just again, it's a challenging time to do stuff like that. But 
our members still spend a full day of their lives doing sometimes six or seven meetings with kind of high pressure situations with members of Congress and their representatives doing this thing. So it's always really inspiring, really awesome to see. And that's something we always do every year to try to build up, not just in a sense, like the presence of Planetary Society members, but we want to build up the civic confidence of our members. How do you engage confidently as a citizen to share your love for space and try to see something active with that? Uh, I'd also would be remiss if I didn't mention I had my first peer-reviewed published paper mm -hmm. uh, in the journal Space Policy on the reconstructing the history of the Apollo program cost uh, by year, by major program, kind of going all the way down into the little programs. They even have engine procurement costs in the, in the major data set. And this gives a way to really compare directly the cost of the one and only data point, right, that we have for successfully sending humans to the moon to <laughs> modern efforts. And obviously, there's a big difference of technology and structures and, and even the types of institutions going to the moon now. But it, I'd say there's something worth analyzing and comparing to that one successful moonshot. Uh, or the moon program. And so that's that was a big piece of work to get something through peer review. I'm really proud of that. And then and the society, because we're, you know, public organization, we paid extra and we made that completely free to access for anybody. So you don't, you know, I know there's probably a ton of subscribers listening to this to the Space Policy Journal. Uh, but if you don't have your <laughs> subscription, you can still view it for free uh, on their website. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, th that was a really great paper. I mean, you know, that's, that's such a useful work that you've done in sort of collecting all those old data points and putting it into one place. So we have this, this really nice tool to, like, I, I feel that we're going to be referencing that for years and years and years as we as we look at all the different programs that come down the line. Yeah. So uh, yeah, congratulations on that. It's a really yeah. big uh, accomplishment. Thank you. It's kind of amazing. No one had done that before, right? I mean, this is yeah. <laughs> the one time <laughs> we went to the moon. And it's kind of surprising how little we understand about what it costs to get there. And I make, and this will come up actually in the discussion we're about to have. But one of my fundamental beliefs and something that I argue in the paper is that funding is proxy for political priority, right? You can only ever spend a dollar once, you know, once it's appropriated. And so where the money goes at the end of the day, despite whatever rhetoric you have to the contrary, despite whatever soaring visions to say, right? Words are cheap. You know, we can say them and we will, you know, frequently in this uh, podcast. <laughs> but where the dollars go ultimately tells you priorities of an administration, a company, anything. And that's why I am so obsessed, in a sense, with tracking where the money goes, because that tells you the relative priority of various programs over others. And that tells you something about Artemis now, and it tells you something about Apollo back then. And it helps, you know, really keep a perspective on some of these things that we talk about that we love to see. And, and sometimes when we get frustrated, why we don't see them. Yeah, yeah. It probably keeps you sane, uh, stifting through all the uh, the headlines, too. So <laughs> it's numbers have a way of being very soothing and predictable and uh, non triggering in a sense. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right. So, uh, yeah. So let's let's dig into the decadal survey. So um, this is, you know, such a rare event and it's so important. I wanted to maybe just spend a little bit of time explaining a bit about what it is. Uh, you know, you are the chief advocate at the Planetary Society. This is your bread and butter. This is your job. So for anyone who's not been waiting 10 years for this report to come out, uh, what is the decadal survey? Why is it important? What does it do? The, the really simple 
version of this is that the decadal survey is the official recommendation of the planetary science community for what NASA should do in planetary science in the next 10 years. And what makes it a powerful document is that Congress respects it, the White House respects it, and even NASA respects it. And it's written into public law that NASA has to take into account the recommendations made into this report as they create their program. And so even though it's a set of recommendations, at the end of the day, it has a very strong correlation with program outcomes, right? So in other words, what it yeah. recommends that's top priorities tend to happen. We have perfect examples of it. And it comes out every 10 years, right? Decadal. We've had two in the, for planetary science in the last uh, 20 years. The recommendation in the first decadal was to do a major mission at Mars that turned out to be the Curiosity rover. The second decadal recommended starting Mars sample return, which is now happening. And then also number two recommendation was going to Europa, which is also now happening, right? And so the recommendations made in this new one will very likely happen. And as a consequence, we'll be directing the future of planetary exploration at NASA and by you know virtue of its size, the rest of the world for the next few decades. So what this report says will have serious and long-lasting consequences to the field of planetary exploration globally for decades. And so that's is why we pay really close attention to it and try to parse through what it's saying and what it's not saying in order to determine you know, the, the fundamental priorities for the space program, uh, for yeah. planetary exploration. Yeah. And one thing that I, I kind of like to emphasize too, is that like, it, it carries a lot of weight just in the, 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 like the credibility of putting it together. Cause this is not a, a, a weekend report. This, this mm -hmm. takes, I think the kickoff meeting was something like two years ago yeah. and they, they have all these committees that are deliberated. There's a lot of evidence-based thing. So they, they really, you know, this is as close as you can get to NASA, just asking the science community, like what is actually important to you? Not just one person, but the whole community at large. This, this like distills all of that prioritization from everyone who studies science into like one document. So it's, it's got like that kind of mandate that comes with it like it's very democratic in a sense right yeah that's a very important uh thing to keep in mind right that this is a process that takes a long time it, it's structured to have lots of opportunities for input not just from the scientific mm -hmm. community but from the public like the, the planetary society we submitted two what's called white papers to this process talking about search for life and planetary defense I actually submitted a third one uh, with a space philosopher talking about the need to prioritize various uh, near-term or accessible areas in the solar system to get science before they are disrupted by commercial activities, right, for example. And, you know, something like 700 papers were submitted. This is run by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering, and Medicine, right? The, the National Academies, is, is for, for shorthand, it was created under... President Lincoln in the 1860s as an, <laughs> as an official independent body to provide scientific input to the administration and to Congress, right? So this is an independent organization that contracts work, you know, at NASA asks them to do it, they give them some money to do these studies. But the scientists that do it are, as you pointed out, they come from the, the scientific, these are leaders in the field of planetary science. 
and they volunteer their time at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. And they spend hundreds, if not thousands of hours working on this. And again, the power, as you point out, comes from this idea that this is as kind of as close as you can get to a consensus report. And, you know, in a way that's astonishing, right? How do you get thousands of people ultimately to respect the process enough to say, all right, even if my particular field of science is not the top priority, I trust that the process itself was fair, that we had a deliberative process, that we made our arguments. And I think this is driven by the fact that science is is the fundamental aspect of this. This is the objective nature of science that comes out that drives consensus. And this is why you don't see something like this for human spaceflight. Why is not there a, a decadal <laughs> survey for human spaceflight? Because there's no objective, correct human spaceflight program to do, right? But with the sciences, theoretically, you start, you can all agree on what the most important questions in the field, the, or the, the most important questions facing the field are. And once you define those questions, which they do, that's the other aspect of this report. They define mm-hmm. the, the 12 biggest questions that they want to try to answer. The missions fall out of those questions, right? And so you need the scientific data and, and the field, the, the process of science there guides and creates this consensus that then helps you prioritize. And that's the other key thing. This creates a system of priority for what NASA should invest. It's very limited <laughs> at the end of the day resources into for planetary exploration. NASA does this, uh, or the National Academies does this for every one of NASA's five science divisions, right? Heliophysics, astrophysics, earth science, uh, what's called now, what is it, like microgravity science, you know, low Earth orbit stuff, and planetary science. And these, again, have been very successful. They call them, in a sense, the sword and shield of the community, right? So you have your sword to kind of like advance your priorities in a, in a systematic way. Everyone's agreeing that this is the top priorities. You fight for those. And then you have your shield for when budget cuts come down and you can all gather and defend against it, you know, in a coherent <laughs> manner, as opposed to just scattering to the wind and everyone trying to, to save their own skin. That's a really critical thing. It drives community consensus. And so, yes, it's through this open process that takes two years to put, to put together but because of that, it's in that democratic deliberative process that is by definition not efficient, but because people feel they have the opportunity to participate, to have their voices heard and integrated into the final report, it's very powerful at the end of the day, like any democratic process, right? So it's 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 a very important document, as you point out, through the process that makes it. Um, so you mentioned these 12 questions, and I kind of wanted to, to talk about sort of the difference of the structure of this report, because, um, you know, in the past, they've sort of done this thing where they have a, a section for every kind of part of the solar system. You know, here's the moon chapter, here's the Mars chapter, and they sort of approached it as a destination specific thing. But that's very different uh, this time in sort of the the way they approach the top level questions. Can you maybe explain sort of what the implication of that is, and well, so, you know, what they did, and then what the implication of that is? Yeah. So the last decadal survey that came out in 2011 uh, for the period, what was it, 20. 13 through 2022, and they're offset by a couple of years, grouped all of its uh, studies by major solar system destination, the moon, Mars, small bodies, outer planets, so forth. This one attempted to really trace everything back to these fundamental science questions that they're trying to answer, 
as opposed to taking any a priori assumption of what the important areas in the solar system are, right? So it tried to basically abstract out a little bit the idea that you're, you don't have to, because there is a moon, you just have to go to the moon because there is Venus. You just have to go to Venus because it's a single destination. It tries to start with the fundamentals and then things fall out of that. And again, you know, it's hard to do. How do you summarize everything in 12 questions or, or the most important stuff in 12 questions? And so they actually talk about in the report, you know, you have the structure of the report. We probably don't need to spend too much time on, but sometimes understanding the frameworks of how these things come together are, you know, illustrative. Yeah. But the you have a steering committee and you have, these are the core planetary scientists who are volunteering again, experts in the field, organizing and writing most of the report. And it's from the steering committee that helped basically define these 12 questions with input from a lot of other people. And then they kind of co-wrote this whole field, you know, and analyzed all these destinations through these questions, right? Of how, you know, going to Venus addresses things about habitability or how going to ocean worlds would address things of solar system formation or not, right? And, and so that gives you kind of a broader scientific grounding for the mm -hmm. results that come out. And it, I think the idea is also to create what they call a stovepiping, less isolation, you know, so they want just people who study the moon, they want them to be talking to people who also study Mars or Venus or yeah, Mercury, yeah. because they're all terrestrial planets, right? They share some common features of scientific research, uh, just scientific interest that make it relevant. And they try to break it out in that way. And then so you have this much broader structure of scientific questions, which is actually a great read. You've been reading this too, right? You're probably learning a ton like I am about what's been yeah. happening in planetary science. Yeah, just yeah, in the last yeah. There's this years. great, great like summaries of it's like, here's the top five discoveries at Mars in the last 10 years. Here's the top five discoveries at Mercury in the last 10 years. And it's just like, wow, this is like such a great summary of everything I've been covering since I started yeah. this podcast. It's, yeah. it's super useful. <laughs> right. It's, it's, it's a great way to catch up on it. It's also a lot. <laughs> it's like we've learned a it lot. A lot. It's amazing how yeah. much we've learned. And and again, at the end, and then they kind of wrap everything up. They they did actually have panels that were based on destinations. So they had a moon mm -hmm. panel. They had a Mars panel. And these were other groups of scientists who helped define and, and talk about the scientific needs and priorities at these places that fed into this broader steering committee that then integrated throughout these questions. And so it's a it's somewhat complex process, but again, at the end of the day, I think what they were trying to do was to take this fundamentals approach about starting with the scientific motivation and not giving any, you know, pre-existing weight to one destination over another by dint that it's been invested in before, right? So trying to take an open approach to it. I really liked that approach because it like, you know, so even just in my own personal journey of trying to do more than Mars this year, I've been really reaching out to all these different communities and seeing how sort of, you know, connected or not connected that they are. And I think this this approach really fosters like a holistic community. Like it kind of tears the walls down, right? Where it's just like, hey, we're all just planetary scientists. We're all just trying to figure out how this crazy solar system works. Like let's <laughs> let's team up. And, you know, and, and I felt like that was a really nice way to approach it. And I hope that has like, I, this is like not the, the emphasis of the report, but I kind of feel like that may have some lasting impacts on sort of how we approach things in the next 10 years. I hope it does at least. So 
Yeah, and I I think you see that too with astrobiology, which was requested by NASA to be a major theme of this, mm-hmm. which I think it would have been anyway. So, you know, NASA requests certain structures to it as well, and they they added planetary defense to consideration of this report and astrobiology. And astrobiology is one of those fields where it's so like the membrane of what defines an astrobiologist versus a biologist yeah. or a geochemist <laughs> or a, a geneticist is so thin and yeah, it's super multidisciplinary. Yeah. Right? And it's, it's so it, there's tons of crosstalk, which is generally, I think, where you get exciting ideas, mm-hmm. right? When you have lots of cross pollination between different disciplines and just the structure of academia, the structure of funding systems, and then just default brains of social networks, we tend to gravitate into tight, similar, familiar groups. And so having these types of cross-disciplinary sciences, like planetary science, like astrobiology, and then sh- taking that, as you point out, from these fundamentals questions approach, I think is very, you're right, very purposely trying to create this broader mindset that it's not Mars versus outer planets or Venus versus Mercury, but what are the big questions and let's all try to work on them together. Yeah, yeah. All right, so uh, from these 12 questions, um, I think maybe the headline news that most people will look at with the Cato survey comes from the mission recommendations that flow from that, right? So uh, the scientists get together, they look at the questions, they look at a bunch of proposals for actual missions. Uh, these are part of the papers that you said were submitted. You know, here's this team has this idea, this team has that idea, uh, and they kind of rank them and come up with a, with a, a recommendation. So um, we can kind of talk about all the different programs sort of however you want here. Um, but, uh, maybe we'll just start with, with flagships. Cause again, this is, this is the, the top line. Everyone's thing. favorites. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so, so the, the, the top recommendation is this Uranus orbiter and probe. And I, I thought it was kind of funny because everyone was like, really like, wow, outer planets. Like we never saw this coming, but kind of like you said, the the recommendations tend to come true and the uranus orbiter and probe was just the the last the third one on the list from the last one 10 yep. years ago so it's not really that big of a surprise when you get down to it i think um but i don't know i guess maybe that's maybe what are your thoughts on that and and, and the top line uh, flagship stuff yeah that that's my feeling as well i think the biggest surprise to me was how few surprises there actually were how consistent it was <laughs> with the last decadal survey and it it, it goes to a fundamental, again, this is a structural thing, which I find fascinating about planetary science, as opposed to fields like astrophysics or astronomy. Planetary science is very destination focused, right? Like it's very mm-hmm. specific, yeah. the type of data you get back. It's so it it's very hard to do one mission that gives data that's relevant to every single planetary scientist, right? By the fact of that planetary science is such a broad field, like you have people who specialize in planetary atmospheres or exospheres or formation or orbital dynamics and celestial dynamics of how things move. Or you have people who focus on how differentiation, how cores of planets like form and change compared to others. Or then you have things like Jupiter, right? So you don't send a mission to Jupiter and that you don't find anything out about Mercury by doing that, right? So no matter how many missions you send to Jupiter, there'll still be a Mercury scientist who really wants a mission to, to Mercury. And then same with this, even though we've had 10 years of discoveries with the Perseverance mission, we're building Europa Clipper, we've had missions to you know, like Cyrus-Rex and Grail to the moon, none of them have gone to Uranus. And so the scientific case for Uranus was still pretty much there, right? Unadulterated from 
prior decadal surveys, just because yeah, yeah. you just don't learn anything about Uranus by not going to Uranus. And astrophysics, for example, very different. You're building a general purpose telescope like the James Webb Space Telescope that you can point at. You can actually point it at Uranus and learn something about Uranus. You can point it at distant galaxies and learn something about early universe formation. You can point it at whatever, right? And, and you, could, you could touch on many different scientific disciplines by where you point it. Planetary science can't do that. It's very discreet in a sense of where mm -hmm. its data comes yeah. from. And so that really impacts, I think, how they think about these priorities. And I think that's one of the reasons why you saw very little change, which I guess really is a compliment to the last decadal survey of like, wow, yeah. they really thought this through. Because <laughs> it's not just that the Uranus orbiter and probe is, was the number three recommendation. We did one and two in the last decade. Okay, great. Now it's number one again. But that the fourth recommendation of the last decadal was this Enceladus orbiter, right? Which, and lo and behold, number two flagship after Uranus, if they have the money, and Enceladus, what they call an orbilander, something that orbits and then actually lands itself. <laughs> yeah, um, brand new word we could all yeah, enjoy now, right? Exactly. <laughs> uh, and so that, that also maintained, in a sense, they just kind of shifted up, both of them. So that was, yeah. that was interesting to me. But yeah, Uranus is the big one. I mean, this would be... There's a ton of reasons to go to Uranus, right? Beyond the jokes that we're all going to get now for the next 20 years for free. <laughs> it's the, this, it's a ice giant, right? Which is like, it's more heavier elements than hydrogen and helium and mostly an ice form. It's very similar, it seems like, to the vast majority of exoplanets that we're discovering mm -hmm, yeah. out there. Um, and again, we only have data from this quick drive-by of Voyager 2 in 1986. That's pretty much everything we know about it beyond whatever you know ongoing hubble telescope observations you can get from it so this is an understudied planet and so is neptune but neptune had a much more difficult path literally just physically yeah, to get yeah. to so uranus kind of rose to the top as a consequence of that yeah and you get a bunch of extra bonus stuff there. like so you know thinking about those 12 questions it really t it hits everything because you have you know, you have this kind of like uh, first order discoveries of just having never been to an ice giant, like you said, but you can almost get some like planetary formation stuff with the mm -hmm. moon system. You can get the exoplanet stuff, like you said, because it seems to be like all the other exoplanets we find. There's an astrobiology bent to it because there may be some ocean worlds in the moons. Like there's just like it's its own little system. And so because it's like just like all the other planets, they're only little they're like mini solar systems in a way. And so mm -hmm. you can touch a lot of different stuff there. So, yeah, it's pretty they're going to probe the atmosphere. So there's just like a ton of stuff that's going to yeah. be uh, found with that. So that's pretty exciting. It's a it's a pretty it's pretty uh, ambitious mission, and I'm pretty excited for it. <laughs> it is, and it's it, what I love about it in some ways is there's very few things in our lives these days that feel truly exploratory, right? Mm -hmm. This idea that something brand new is being revealed. We had this feeling, not coincidentally, in another planetary science mission with the flyby of Pluto back in 2015, right? Like. We literally saw something new come into existence to us, right? In terms of our epistemological understanding of, of something new, even though it was out there, I guess. You know, it, it was the planetary equivalent of if a tree falls in the forest and no one is there to hear it, you know, does it make a sound? Yeah. Pluto was that same thing. But now we've seen it, right? So it, it exists solipsistically. But there's, I think, a certain joy to that of exploratory science, right? Where you just like, let's just go somewhere 
And by the fact that we just don't know anything about it, we will learn a ton of stuff, right? Mm-hmm. Just like yeah. sending a camera, sending an iPhone, radiation hardened iPhone with a battery to Uranus, you'd probably learn something, right? You know, yeah. <laughs> and that's, I think, psychologically really helpful counterbalance to our otherwise very internal self-reflecting society that we have on, you know, in terms of it's like social media literally just pulling us down into our phones about in in this endless cycles of gossip about other people and exploratory (laughs) science literally makes us look up and out and deal with new data that will challenge fundamental assumptions about our sciences. It helps us validate our theories about solar system formation. All these things that we've developed in absence of it can be tested, but also we will just by the fact that we've never been there, we'll just fundamentally learn something new, right? It's the equivalent of jumping on one of those old sailing ships, going over the horizon and seeing, I don't know, are there large birds on this island too? It's just, there's something very joyous about it. And that's what's exciting to me about going to these underexplored places is that they're just going to be fundamentally new. Mm -hmm. And again, this is my more soapboxy spiritualist kind of approach <laughs> Sagan-esque kind of approach let it out man let it out <laughs> <laughs> but that's like what gets you going right it, it, it gives yeah, you a little yeah. palpitation in the heart when you see something new for the with human eyes for the first time that's what planetary exploration is and so i'm yeah. very much excited to see those weird and wonderful moons of uranus and learning about that planet why it's tipped on its axis 90 degrees all of these things that we just have no way of knowing a priori because by definition, we just don't know what it is. Right. And so it'll be really fun to go there. It's just, it's going to take 20 years. <laughs> yeah. It's so, going to be a while. Yeah. Yeah, we have to be <laughs> yeah. That's why I'm almost not even talking about the Enceladus mission. Cause it's like in the best case scenario, they start thinking about it in like 10 years from now. Yeah. And it's like, yeah, yeah. okay. I I'm, think they I'm maybe gonna, launch in the 2040s and then maybe get there yeah. in the 2050s. Yeah. It's just, <laughs> yeah. It, yeah. These are. I, I will be collecting retirement checks when it gets to Enceladus. So yeah, if we're like, lucky, right? Like, I, yeah. I hope to be alive. And it's just, it's you start realizing too the other problem of going to these unexplored places. They're unexplored for a reason, right? They're so far yeah. away, <laughs> they're and far, yeah. they're not easy to get to. And so we just haven't done them yet. And we're approaching these like pharaonic levels of commitment where you're building these generation missions, right? Of ten, twenty, maybe thirty years. And we're seeing this in astrophysics, too, with their next big platform, uh, their future super Hubble space telescope that they proposed in their decadal survey. They start building it maybe in the 2030s, and then you launch it late 2040s, and then you start collecting data, right? Again, almost Mm -hmm. 20 years from now. And so 30 years from now. And so you just, how can you still be pushing the envelope of this exploratory new knowledge coming in? when everything is taking 20 to 30 years to pull off, I mean, the, the scientists who start the project probably won't be the scientists collecting the data. Yeah, yeah. And so you have to think about these, again, these like generational handoffs, these, these long commitments um, that are really pushing the boundaries of a single career, much less a single lifetime, potentially. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there's a, a lot of discussions to be had about that. You know, I almost asked the question of like, is there a limit to like how big and how far a project our current system can can do? You know, like, <laughs> you know, if we if we ever wanted to support a, a hundred year mission or something like, you know, would would NASA and Congress and the planetary science community and the decadal survey, would all those pieces of infrastructure be up for that task? I don't know. That's a, yeah. that's a different podcast, probably. <laughs> well, have, there's they're, they're studying that. 
uh, uh, what do they call it? There's this mission to another star, or mm -hmm. like it's in a heliophysics mission. I forget exactly what it's called, but it's to the interstellar. It's like a 50-year prime mission is what they're studying. Yikes. And I'm trying to... Uh, I, I, I should know this because they, they've talked about a lot of studies for this, but like how they would endure a project for that long. And you know what? You can look at a project like Voyager. And that's what the thing is. Like Voyager is that. It just wasn't stated to be that at the beginning, right? Voyager launched yeah, in 1977 yeah. where it's 45 years old and they've managed to do it. It's just, <laughs> it's just geriatric. It just like turns on <laughs> once every 12 hours and takes some magnetometer data and sends it back at like two bits a second um, but yeah. <laughs> it's still doing stuff out there, right? And so there are ways to do it, but it, it becomes different if you need it to last 50 years, right? That's a whole different yeah, yeah. challenge. Yeah, especially if all the science comes at the end rather than at the beginning, yeah. right? So yeah. It's like SETI or, you know, in the movie Contact, or like, what do you do in the interim to keep your scientists successful and publishing and having other careers? And, and that's a challenging thing. Uh, recommendations for the smaller missions. So it's not all flagships. Uh, we have the New Frontiers program. We have the Discovery program. They don't do recommendations for Discovery, but they, they do do these kind of themes for, for New Frontiers, which is like their middle class. You know, that's like Osiris Rex, Juno class missions. Um, any surprises or favorites you have from there that you want to touch on before we move on? Uh, you know, again, the, my surprise for New Frontiers. So New Frontiers, they have different... These are competed missions, right? So they, people propose... Yeah. Uh, they have cost caps that they occasionally follow. Uh, they're <laughs> meant to be about a billion dollars. They actually recommend in this decadal to bump up the cost cap to about a billion and a half, uh, 1.6 billion. And just to reality, the reality of just some of these difficulties of long term, particularly going further out, it just costs you longer to operate the mission. That just adds to your total cost, even if building the spacecraft is about the same uh, for, for another mission. So they, they do these in, you know, one at one call at a time. They just did the fourth New Frontiers competition. We got Dragonfly, which is a mission I'm so excited about, which is no way ever going to fit into that cost cap. Yeah, they, not a hope fly, to, to ever were, hit know. $1 billion. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, so New Frontiers 5 would be the next one. But New Frontiers 5 was defined in the last Decadal survey because they recommended... Yeah, this is sort of a... The, the mission lost between surveys here. <laughs> yeah, so this is where it gets a, a bit weird for me. Uh, so they so this is again so NASA tends to follow the very top recommendations right but there's no guarantee once you get down beyond the top three recommendations budget realities really start impacting you so the last decadal recommended two new frontiers missions NASA selected one right so they, there's this lingering new frontiers five call but which was proposed as a list of acceptable destinations is what the decadal gives for it like five or six places to go types of missions to do. And the new decadal report declined to change that. They they said, nope, that's still the one defined 10 years ago, which, again, was really surprising to me, frankly, because you'd think they'd want to weigh in on that. NASA's going to compete this in two years. It definitely falls within this decadal survey. And there's some yeah. missions now in that list that, frankly, don't seem super relevant anymore. Um, I'm thinking of uh, there's a Venus mission. Now we have two discovery class missions going to venus plus a european mission going to venus there's a south pole aiken basin sample return mission which seems to be very relevant to what artemis is going to be doing anyway yeah. <laughs> i don't know if you need a separate planetary mission for that 
And so you really are down to maybe a handful. There's like an IO observer, which is great. Comet sample return. Uh, and I forget, maybe a, a Saturn probe to go into the Yeah, Saturnian Saturn atmosphere. probe, I think, was the other one, yeah. And again, I just uh, talking about consistency, I was surprised to see that they had no desire to reconsider that list. So then they give their recommendations for the, what is it, the fifth and sixth or sixth and seventh? Six and seven, yeah. What number, sixth and seventh ones, which seem very unlikely to be relevant. Because NASA is going to, has a very tight, we'll talk about budget later, but the, NASA, by the fact it's already delayed New Frontiers, has not even selected the second one or the last decadal, seems it'd be tough to get to their selections, right? So they kind of, this decadal survey committee almost seemed to step away from having any opinion on that and, and missed a chance to really influence the direction of this. Yeah, yeah. I should add that Enceladus is is part of the potential list of the New Frontiers five selection because nasa somewhat i mean again shows you the power of recommendations versus if you're the space agency they added outer uh, ocean worlds as a potential consideration to that approved list by the decadal and lo and behold titan won in the the first and new frontiers four and there's a chance enceladus could win which maybe i don't know i shouldn't betray my opinions on this but i'd love to see a mission to enceladus sooner than later <laughs> yeah and that could that could win again so it you know they have a, a couple options like this notably i'll say one more thing about new frontiers these mid-class missions no mars destinations mm -hmm. included in these lists right yeah, yeah. so we, we can talk about we should talk about mars soon because actually you know we talked about flagships there's a one ultra flagship that we didn't mention, right? <laughs> These were new flagships that we're talking about. The top recommendation that, that the report opens with, right? And, and this is, I think, easily glossed over because we're all excited about new stuff. The top recommendation of the NASA's robotic program, super clear, is to complete Mars sample return. Yeah, finish sample return, yeah. As soon as <laughs> Get possible. the job done, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And Mars sample return is a weird program because it's backloaded. All the science comes at the successful return right? And there's no science that happens while the mission is ongoing. So this is a huge deferred uh, feedback situation for the Mars community and a very expensive program. It is the largest, it, it has a chance, it's already estimated to be about five and a half billion dollars just for the U.S. contribution, which would place it at within the top three most expensive planetary missions ever highly risky, right? I don't know if you've seen some of that new video footage that they're just basically going to like spring the rocket up in the air and then light it. <laughs> yeah. Is it they literally off? throw it. And then, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they just toss it in the air, the rocket tech stuff. Um, and this very tight integration with the European space program that the Europeans are providing a rover and an orbiter, all of this stuff. Um, it's next year, NASA's requesting $822 million from Mars sample return, Right. That that's huge. That's more than NASA's entire heliophysics science division, just from our sample return. So, Mars sample return is this weird program again because there's no science happening as it's going on. It's just bringing this stuff back. The science that it brings back is going to be very specific to a very certain type of community, particularly in geochemistry, um, potentially astrobiology. What maybe we can hope, but the general kind of in situ science of Mars basically pauses now for 10 years uh, beyond what's yeah, already yeah. there. And so it's a very tight budget already with NASA's planetary program because of Mars sample return is so big and any problems with it will have a J, you know, James Webb esque 
level of consequences for the broad program. Yeah, yeah. And even to put that the deferred science in, in even more context. So sample return was was suggested as top priority last decadal. It doesn't have effect on this decadal. The next one will be made before the samples get back. And so the one after that will actually reflect what we learned from the sample. So 20 yeah. years from now, when they do another <laughs> decadal survey, they're going to be like, they'll be able to look at these rocks and be like, okay, now what should we do? So it's a, it's a pretty crazy maybe, maybe, yeah. stretch of time, right? Like it's nuts. Yeah. yeah. I, I mean, this is the climax of 50 years of the Mars robotic program is happening with Mars sample return, right? That I, I've, as most of you probably listening have done, I've gone through every NASA budget proposal since the 1960s and, and, and read them through. And the first time I've seen a reference to Mars sample return was in 1978. <laughs> yeah. So right after Viking. So this has been the gleam of a Mars scientist eye for almost half a century, right? And so... What happens to Mars, the Mars program, after Mars sample return is kind of un, uncertain, right? They, they, it's like catching, you know, your proverbial dog catching the car. They may not quite know what to do mm -hmm. because everything up to this point has been leading to Mars sample yeah. return. Yeah, one of the pretty strong criticisms that I kind of agree with with sample return is that they're they're designing it in a way that is not very repeatable or sustainable it's sort of like a one-time bespoke we go there once we get the samples and then that's kind of it mm -hmm. and so to your point what do you do after sample return do you get more samples and go through this whole process all over again or do you just go back to remote sensing and, and and rovers driving around which seems like almost like stepping back do you go all in on human spaceflight which is a very uncertain, you know, time to you talk about sample return being a deferred science. Who knows when we'll be able to actually send scientists there themselves, right? So mm -hmm. it really puts you into a corner in a way the way they've they've designed it, right? So yeah, I have I have pretty pretty big concerns about what what the Mars program does in the twenty twenties uh, for sure. <laughs> yeah, well, in the twenty thirty, I mean, there's just the the budget for Mars is just going to be eaten up by sample return, and we'll be lucky to maintain all existing missions and maybe get a, a new small one. We've already seen that NASA's proposing to cancel the yeah. ice mapper, which was this kind of mission no one was yeah. super excited about. Not, not a mission <laughs> uh, grounded in science, I don't think so. <laughs> yeah, and actually pretty harshly critiqued in yeah. this decadal survey for not going through a process of defining good science before it was defined. But the problem is now that now NASA canceled it, this decadal didn't endorse it. And so there's no argument no, you no. can make. No, there's, there's not a lot of hope for it. <laughs> yeah, it's just it didn't have enough commitment behind it. Anyways, Jake, direct us back. In the, we're, we're, <laughs> we're on Mars now, but I think you wanted to go to Discovery. But we should talk. And Mars is a huge thing. So it's it's kind of... I don't know. We could talk about this for, for a while. <laughs> yeah, we could. Well, Mars was the next section, so we could, we can blend these together a little bit. Okay. But yeah, so maybe um, Discovery, like I said, they don't make recommendations for it. Um, we can talk about the budget maybe in the next section, So because I know they make some recommendations about well, that. But they, they do recommend a cadence for Discovery. Right, yes. Right, so they, they say Discovery missions, these are the quote-unquote small missions, the smallest, not true anymore, actually, Simplex is the smallest, but the small real chunky missions that NASA does for planetary science. Right now, cost capped at about half a billion each, not including operations, not including launch. Um, NASA's taken some very creative accounting approaches to current slew of 
discovery missions like Veritas and Da Vinci going to to Venus, which are now in the billions of dollars, more than a billion each. Um, the but the idea was the classic idea of discovery comes out from better, faster, cheaper for those mm-hmm. who remember that, right? This idea that NASA's building too many big must not fail missions that when they do fail, it's just a disaster for the community because it's like the one they got every 10 years. So you'd switch to frequent launch opportunities, low cost. And as originally devised back in the 90s, discovery missions had to fit within a fairing, the standard fairing of a Delta II rocket. So that constrained their size and mass. They had to launch within 36 months of selection, right? Which constrained their complexity. And so they were able to be sending these, like a couple of these every two years, these little missions, pop, 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 just to, it, it's great for the community. It trains scientists, it trains mission management. It keeps the uh, engineering and uh, industrial workforce really engaged and really generally a good deal like any overruns on a small mission like that are going to be modest compared to a mega mission but we've seen the growth of discovery in complexity and time right and so now the, the two discoveries just selected da vinci and veritas they're selected in what 2021 yeah we last, saw year, last yeah. year and they won't launch until 2028 or 2030 right so we're, we're talking now a decade to build two discovery missions which is yeah nuts really and so the recommendation is that nasa launch five of these a decade and it nasa actually kind of caught up and and selected five in the last decade at the very end i'll kind of push to the back because of budget issues but it's going to be challenging to select more discoveries so that's you know the only thing that they really say is that they're meant to be reactive to new discoveries right because they're on a shorter time frame and they're meant to be kind of these modest missions that don't crowd out the budget for other things. And so it's it, they just say, you know, keep doing these, keep doing a lot of them, but that's going to be challenging just if it takes nine years mm-hmm. and a billion dollars per Yeah, those big spikes mission. are going to so be... They recommend yeah, raining right, that right in Right in the middle of this decade, you're going to have the, the, the peak of the development cycles uh, hitting the budget all at once, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, very challenging budget ahead. Interesting. Okay. All right. Well, so blending uh, small missions in Mars, uh, I, one thing I wanted to bring up with you is I, I thought it was interesting how little they were talking about all this kind of low cost Mars movement that's happening right now. So, you know, we had uh, last year, there was that Massweg report, which we covered on the show with Bruce Tchaikovsky, um, you know, so a bunch of ideas on how we could actually have Mars missions through this in the shadow of Mars sample return, if you will. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we just had this conference uh, just uh, at the end of last month, this low cost Mars conference in Pasadena, mm-hmm. again, just putting all this uh, ideas on the table and figuring out what we can do and, and approaching it from this small thing. Did you find that weird that the Cato kind of just said like, okay, simplex exists and you can keep doing that, but we're not touching anything smaller or like, we're not going to like, like play in that space. Did you find that interesting or, or bizarre? I, <laughs> I did. And <laughs> I was, sur- oh, yeah, here's another thing I was surprised. I was surprised by how little discussion there was about Mars, the Mars program yeah. in general, considering, you know, and it, it's kind of weird. So, right. We, we just talked about Mars sample. So simultaneously while Mars is receiving attention of one of the largest investments on a single project in planetary history with Mars sample return. We can, it's again, it's so different and NASA actually treats it differently. Mars sample return is a yeah, completely not separate project Mars outside program, of the right? Mars, yeah. Mars exploration program. It's not, it, it's, it's book kept accounting wise <laughs> in the planetary science division, but it actually answers directly to the associate administrator of, of the science yeah. mission directorate. So 
that's even managed separately than any other project within the planetary science division. And so we can almost take it as this, as you point out, this kind of one-off, bespoke, highly unusual situation and shunt that off to the side, right? Because also, again, just fundamentally, the type of science it's doing, it's very different than the type of science that we've done for the last 50 years, which is you go to a place, you get a ton of data immediately when you're there, right? And ongoing as long as you're there. So that aspect of our science, the in situ part of our science, is is in a very uncertain place, as we've talked about. And I thought you would see more direction based on exactly what you just said, that you've had a lot of work on low-cost Mars science concepts, a lot of work by the Mars um, Exploration Program working group and uh, study groups, these kind of analysis groups that that feed data and, and opinions to, to NASA programmatic structures. And you really didn't see that much discussed in it. Um, you saw... No, again, like you didn't see a recommendation to pursue the International Mars Ice Mapper, even with an improved. They they said you could approve it, but they didn't yeah. endorse it. Um, they said continue operating all missions, fine. And they said to grow the budget back for the in place, you know, the in situ Mars science stuff, but it didn't say what to do with it. They they gave some recommendations, but they well, I'll actually rephrase that. In a dedicated report like this, you have findings. And you have recommendations. And those are the chunky bit. Those are the important bits in the report, right? That's what NASA. Yeah, if you're skimming to. the report, that's what you do. You just go finding recommendation. Okay, yeah. next thing, finding recommendation. Yeah. Right. And findings are like a statement of fact, kind of, right? It's like, this is a thing. We have a finding that this is this. But it's the recommendations that's like literally the formal yeah. recommendation to NASA, right? So if you're not in that, you know, I don't think NASA doesn't have to acknowledge yeah. that, right? And so the the problem to me is that there's very few actual recommendations for what to do with the Mars program. They say grow the budget, but they don't say what to do with it. They say to study a commercial payload delivery service program, kind of like what's going on at the moon, but it doesn't say to do it, right? It just says to to look at it. So yeah, it was really lukewarm. It was like once the moon one has kind of finished and you can evaluate some results, you should think about <laughs> yeah. how you might want to apply that to Mars. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, I think arguably it'd be really hard to have a clips like program be, yeah. at Mars because you're you're just your feedback loop is so long. Yeah. The shots on goal thing is right? very and hard to do just, with a 26 month cycle. Right. Yeah, yeah. 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 And not to mention an eight month traverse, you know, six to eight months yeah. to even to get there. Right. And you just have uh, it's just much more complex. I think for commercial stuff, you need something that you can mass produce. You know, you have to lean into your efficiencies of scale to save yeah. money on commercial stuff. Right? This is why SpaceX launches all the time. Um, you don't get that with going to Mars because of your, your your launch window stuff. It's really challenging. So, yeah, so I, I was I was surprised how little discussion there was. Uh, they did, we should acknowledge, Mars Life Explorer is that they recommended a mission for NASA to pursue after, and is, after peak funding was reached for Mars sample return, which at this point is probably 27, 28 at best, right? Assuming everything goes correctly. And that's a mid-sized mission. Great. You know, one and a half-ish billion dollars. Um, kind of an, I'd say, would you say, agree with this, like the only real astrobiology mission in this entire decadal survey would be this proposed mission for Mars? Because that's like drill into the ice, look for extant life. Yeah, I, I guess the Enceladus flagship was pretty like, like directly look for life inside the plumes and lander, but... But it's, yeah, it's it's one of the few. Yeah. But that was so unlikely to actually yeah, happen, Yeah, that's true, right? yeah. Like, that's our, <laughs> I'd say the, yeah, so maybe that one. Um, 
but I was surprised that that was the the future. And that's not a, as you point out, it's not a low cost mission. That's not these like different type of doing. It's just like here's a lander, and it's basically Phoenix. Yeah, it's like Insight with a drill. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Insight. That's more modern. <laughs> <laughs> that's what the kids are referencing these days. Yeah. As opposed it'll be another to, round of explaining um, why there's no windshield wipers on the solar panels. It'll be great. So yeah, it'll be. Yeah. <laughs> It's Mars is tough. So again, I, th- I think Mars didn't have, a, a, it was very ill-defined and, and the recommendations that were there were hard to, and I think this is my worry at the end of the day, and we can move on, but the, the recommendations that are made for Mars are generally very hard to verify. They're, they're not specific enough, right? So you have one mission and then you're supposed to grow the budget, but you don't know how the budget's supposed to grow without a new mission to really fill it. And so it's hard to evaluate. Like if you're a staff member at Congress or you're a member of Congress, you're interested in this. Like, okay, how is NASA, are they following the decadal priorities for Mars? It's actually really hard to evaluate if yeah. they are or not outside of Mars sample return. Because the, as you point out, there's just not a lot of guidance on what to do. So I'll put on my, my like tinfoil hat for a second and, 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 and put a theory by you. Because I'm looking at this Mars Life Explorer, which is basically a lander with this two meter drill that's going to look for life. Um, and then... I know of this other mission <laughs> that is a uh, Mars uh, landing uh, spacecraft with a two meter drill that's going to look for life uh, that our friends in Europe uh, are stranded with right now. Uh, do you think this is this could be just like an opening? Like, okay, so you have all this money that the Mars program is expected, you know, recommended to increase to, not a ton of guidance, and then an orphaned uh, European mission, which Congress is going to have a vested interest in getting to Mars just to prove that they don't need Russia to do it. Um, you know, this is the Rosalind Franklin ExoMars mission, of course, that I'm talking about here. Is this is this the opening? I kind of see this is like where it's all going to come together and all these these pieces are going to come together to, to fill that gap. <laughs> I like this conspiracy theory a lot. I'll share the tinfoil hat with you. Well, no, I think there's a really, that's a really good point, though. There's a really interesting overlap. That, so there's some differences, right? I mean, I think this is specifically targeting near-surface mm-hmm. ice, um, which I don't think Rosalind Franklin was doing. But... Yeah, I mean, a rover that doesn't move is just a stationary lander, right? It, 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 <laughs> but also, I think beyond the vested interest in supporting European allies, NASA has $150 million invested in its instrumentation mm-hmm. on Rosalind mm-hmm. Franklin um, through some of the major instruments that it's been funding. And yeah, it would be a lot cheaper for NASA to help with landing than to build a whole new yeah. spacecraft to do a, a similar type of thing. So yeah, I, I think you're right. I think this could be, I don't know enough about the kind of the specific science that would yeah, be Yeah, I sort of like, like you know, like, for like you know, perused the science objectives. And there, there seemed like there, it's not 100% yeah. overlap, but it seemed like there was a lot of stuff that was similar there, so. Yeah, and, but you're right. I think there's, at a surface level, there's a strong argument to be made that NASA could pursue now a decadal recommendation with extant hardware by doing this international, by really upping their, which would be ironic, right? Because originally Rosalind Franklin project was <laughs> yeah. driven to the arms of the Russians by NASA pulling out of that joint mission. It'd be on Mars by already if they had just agreed to do it in the first place. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. in 2011. Uh, so it would be a, a nice little uh, narrative wrap up for that. But I, that's a really good point. And I think to that same point, we just saw yesterday the mission extension for OSIRIS-REx now going to Apophis, this near-Earth object, which is 
relevant actually to the decadal recommendations for planetary defense too. And it didn't have to build a whole new spacecraft to do it. They're repurposing yeah, excellent yeah. hardware. Saves them a ton of money. Yeah, uh, the the panel review for that, like they loved that proposal. You just really like that. I've never seen a, a panel recommendation yeah. gush about a mission like that. It was just like, this is one of the most innovative <laughs> things. It's amazing. It does planetary science. It does planetary yeah. defense. It does this. It does that. It was just like, this is so cool. Uh, it's, it might get roasted by the sun on the way there, but we're, we think this is totally worth it. To do. <laughs> it's worth the risk. Yeah. I mean, for the money, it's just yeah. for 200 million over 10 years. Yeah. For a new frontiers like, class you know, mission. Yeah. More than awesome, worth it. So. Oh, yeah. It saves a billion dollars. And now we can actually send it into Apophis like as it's flying by Earth. It's really spectacular. Yeah. So uh, so maybe maybe NASA will just ask the uh, Mars Life Explorer team to uh, see what, you know, if you had a rover that was already done, what would you do with it? And just slap some instruments on there and combine all the science objectives and, and go to town. Well, it would also help, you know, so one of these big problems in terms of programmatic balance is keeping the workforce around. Mm-hmm. Right. So... You can't just will a engineering workforce that can land on Mars out of nothing, right? It's taken NASA and mainly at JPL, but also at places like Lockheed Martin, which builds, you know, all non-rover, basically, yeah. uh, Mars missions. It's taken them 30 years to get so good at that that we kind of expect them to succeed, right? And having another mission after Mars sample return to provide... Uh, the need to continue using the landing technology that that NASA has developed, it's actually a smart move from a long-term investment. Like you can save the money on building the the spacecraft. You focus on building the landing platform for a fraction of the cost and you're, you're keeping your skill set there too. So there's a lot of good long-term workforce strategic investment Mm -hmm. for something like this. Um, in addition to uh, the science that would come out of it. So that's the type of thinking that would also make a lot of sense here. All right. Well, if the, if the NASA policy folks are listening, there's your, your good idea. You can have that one for free. <laughs> <laughs> Just invite us to the launch. Yeah, exactly. This concludes part one of our planetary decadal survey coverage. To get the full picture, make sure you follow up with part two next in your feed. We'll cover the lunar program, Artemis, budgets, and the state of the profession. So don't miss it. If you like the coverage I do, please consider joining us on Patreon. For as little as $3 a month, you can get access to our Red Planet Review Show, which covers lots of news you might not get on the main show. We've been talking extensively about the Perseverance rover's arrival at the Jezero Delta and the exciting science mission coming up for it, so check it out at wemartians.com support. Have a great week, and at Aries Martians. We Martians is an independent, listener-funded podcast created by me, Jake Robbins, on planet Earth. You can reach us at info at wemartians.com or on Twitter at we underscore Martians. <laughs>